1: Why don't you introduce yourself? I'm John Collins. I'm your husband.
2: (laughs) 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 Yes, I know. I'm interviewing my husband.
1: But stick with me here.
2: What is your first reaction when I
1: say the word snoo? Well, my shoulders tensed a little bit. That was my first reaction. Um, It, uh... But that is a word that, you know, that that defined a period of my life.
2: For the uninitiated, the snoo is a mechanized bassinet, you know, for infants. And it costs $1,700 if you buy it outright. The company that makes the snoo, Happiest Baby, calls it a smart sleeper. And its claim to fame is that it automatically responds to your baby's fussing. It does that with white noise and with rocking, movement that is triggered by your child's cries. It also funnels data into an app for you to obsess over, if that's your
1: thing. I think more about the app and its horseshoe-shaped map of the night than I even think about the thing itself. Um, I think about all the little you know, the the diagram of the night that I just had or am having with it's uh, like red and white. And was there another color? I mean, a lot of this I've suppressed now. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are a lot I have a lot of feelings about the snoo.
2: as is probably clear, we had a snoo for our son Sam, who's now two and a half. We rented ours. It ran us $128 a month for four months. And I think it's fair to say that John had a more complicated relationship with the SNOO than I did.
1: I had a love-hate relationship with it because it could do these things. And it could do
2: these things without our input. The SNOO didn't need instructions from us because, in theory, it was listening to Sam. But John often slept with one eye open to see how well it was working. I think it helped Sam sleep longer. Honestly, it's hard to quantify. Mostly, it gave us, especially John, a kind of reassurance through data and technology and a system to follow. And when you're running on two hours of sleep and you have no idea what to do with this tiny person you're supposed to keep safe, that can help you feel a little less insane.
1: Looking back on it now, I I mean, apart from the expense, which... You know, especially if you decide to buy a new one, is is absurd. Um, Those things are comforting, you know, and maybe especially comforting to us now, where so much of our lives are mediated that way, and so much of what we, you know, draw comfort from is things that we read on our computers or iPads or phones, and you know, they're they're sort of a part of our life. So it's almost like letting that kind of personal technology into this part of our life sort of comforts us a little bit.
2: Today on the show, how the maker of this new sold that comfort to new parents and whether it lives up to its promises. I'm Lizzie O'Leary and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around.
1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. When your baby cries, what should you do first? And what if that doesn't work? I'll share soothing techniques to help you keep your baby happy and sleeping better, step by step.
2: The story of this new begins with Dr. Harvey Karp. And if you welcomed a child at any point in the last 20 years, you've probably heard of him. He is a star pediatrician, the Tom Brady of pediatricians. His 2002 book, The Happiest Baby on the Block, was a runaway bestseller.
3: Harvey Karp is a fascinating person because he was famous before the snoo was ever invented. That's Kate Taylor. She's a features reporter for Insider, and she
2: recently published a story about Karp's company, Happiest Baby, which he runs with his wife, Nina Monte
3: Karp. He kind of became famous because of his five S's. These techniques that are intended to help kids sleep. Those five S's are
2: burned into my brain: swaddling, shushing, swinging, side lying, and sucking, as in sucking on a pacifier. Carp's techniques work. You watch a video of him calming a baby, and they just totally settle. It's like magic. You shush
1: as loud as he's crying. How long will that work?
2: Um, forever. Karp also popularized the theory of the fourth trimester. The idea that human babies need another three months after birth to be basically fully cooked. So to comfort them, it helps to make an environment just like the womb. Snug, dark, loud,
3: and jiggly. The idea was pretty novel at the time. A lot of these things have been more normalized, but when he first proposed it, it was kind of, especially the fourth trimester idea, was not um, something that was accepted at that point.
2: When did he think about combining these things, those S's, or at least some of them, into a product?
3: According to Harvey Carp, inspiration struck after he was giving a lecture on SIDS. That stands for Sudden Infant
2: Death Syndrome, an unexplained death usually when a baby is asleep, before the age of one. About 2,300 babies die of SIDS in the U.S. each year.
3: He basically came up with this idea to combine the five S's with what we know or what we think prevents SIDS, which is keeping babies on their back. Being on the back. So basically this was going to be something that keeps babies on their back, but a lot of times babies on their back can't sleep well. They get really fussy. They hate it. Um, So this is like, it keeps the baby on their back, but it also kind of swaddles them, shushes them, uh, swings them, uses these five S's to keep them on their back, but actually make them fall asleep ideally.
2: Once a baby is tightly swaddled on their back, the snoo responds to their cries by playing white noise or increasing a rocking motion. The bassinet itself is made of wood and white mesh. It stands on hairpin legs, and it wouldn't look out of place in a modernist furniture store.
3: It's like, if someone was kind of like, okay, we're going to create this trendy couch that everyone's going to buy from Instagram. And then also it's like, but we want to feel super high tech. Like something I found while researching this is that it's been displayed in several museums um, since it was created. Like it really, they they went all in on the design of this one.
2: The snoo is marketed a couple of different ways. One is as something that can help you prevent SIDS. Another is as a luxury product with all of these celebrities. And I want to talk about that duality a little bit. Like, do you find it interesting that there are these two very oppositional forces behind its marketing?
3: The marketing, it kind of like has this built-in weirdness because they've always said that this was created because they wanted to prevent SIDS. And because they wanted to create this life-saving device. But it costs $1,700 if you aren't doing the rental program. And what we know about SIDS is that it disproportionately impacts people who do not have the money to spend that much on a new baby product. Like It is something that disproportionately impacts people who are not super well off. Uh, So it's something where it's a weird balancing act that they've tried to pull off where they have to say, this is life-saving. Everyone should have it. Insurance maybe should cover it someday. And on the other hand, are like, this is the biggest luxury in the world. like Celebrities love it. I would say that a big thing at uh, the company is a lot of name-dropping. You have celebrity investors. You have celebrities who have used this new. I found from employees that they basically had this thing where they would track celebrities who were pregnant and then like find a way to get them free snooze um, hmm. where they just like have employees drop them off at the house and kind of hand deliver them. Um, like it's it's a weird balance where it makes sense to want celebrities to do this marketing for you. but when you're saying that this is device that should help all children and probably is most useful for really kind of like vulnerable children, it's a hard balance to strike,
1: I think.
2: I want to take apart these different kind of aspects of the snoo, and I, I want to start with the health and safety part first. Um, the marketing materials are definitely focused on preventing SIDS and on the idea that a snoo means more sleep, both for the infant and for the parents. What
3: what does the evidence show? So the evidence is definitely not as conclusive as some of the marketing materials would lead you to believe. Happiest Baby has its own study that um, abstract was published in a peer-reviewed journal, but the study itself was conducted by Happiest Baby and has not been kind of fully peer-reviewed as a paper that indicates it adds an hour or two of sleep a night. So what Happiest Baby is finding itself indicates that this can make babies sleep more. Um, however, we don't have a ton of independent peer-reviewed studies on this. There's one that looks at sleep and that says that it kind of decreases fussiness but doesn't have a definitive outcome on if it makes babies sleep more. So I would say for making babies sleep more, there definitely needs to be more study into this is what I heard from experts. And is there any evidence that it prevents SIDS? Even Happiest babies own research on this says that it prevents behaviors that... Contribute to SIDS or other sleep related deaths. So, um, parents say, Oh, if I have the snoo, I'm less likely to co sleep, which is kind of related to infant sleep related deaths. Uh, It's been linked to it at least. So, they're like, Oh, I co sleep less if I have the snoo. But that's kind of the same of any bassinet. If you have spent a bunch of money on a bassinet, you're less likely to have the baby in bed with you. Or they say, Oh, the baby's more likely to sleep on their back if they have a snoo, which is kind of the same for a lot of other products that keep their baby on the back. So it's something where even Happiest Baby's own research indicate that it kind of reduces risk factors, but when you actually look at what that means, it's kind of like, the obviously, you're going to have the baby sleep on its back if you have a snoo because it straps the baby in on its back.
2: But the marketing from Happiest Baby, Dr. Karp's company with his wife Nina, seems to take things a bit further implying that the device is revolutionary. Back in 2020, when I was pregnant, I got an email from the company saying the FDA had accepted the SNU into its breakthrough device program. The email went on to say that the SNU is the first device ever presented to the FDA that the agency, quote, feels may be able to demonstrate a clear reduction in SIDS. Kate says that the
3: marketing is misleading. So, there have been more than 700 devices that have been accepted into the program since it started in 2015. And in theory, this kind of accelerates the process. In practice, it just means the FDA is kind of more in touch with with what is going on with the product. So, they said, oh, if this works, it would save babies' lives. But we don't know that it works at all. 92% of the devices that have entered the program have not been FDA certified so far. So, it Basically means like, yeah, the FDA is saying if this works like you say it would, that'd be great, but it does not mean the FDA is indicating that they believe it works in any way at this point. And the other thing is usually over two years in for any FDA application, not just through the Breakthrough Device Program, you would expect to see certification by around now unless there have been some major roadblocks. So what is actually happening is... Not totally clear, but it's definitely not something where the FDA is putting any sort of stamp of approval on it. The FDA is just like in touch with Happiest Baby. Why do you think they send out those kind of emails then? What I heard from an expert is that this is something that is not uncommon for startups especially that are trying to get advice FDA certified. This was an expert who did not speak specifically about Happiest Baby, but he said in general, this is something that You say if you want to get investors or you want to convince customers, this isn't something that actually has a ton of scientific meaning.
2: When we come back, we quantify ourselves. Why not quantify our babies?
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
1: If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings,
0: sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.
2: I want to dig into the other side of the duality that we talked about, the, the luxury aspect, right? It is a luxury product. Um, it costs a lot, even if you rent, which which I did. When we rented, I think it cost $128 a month. It, it's more than that now. Um, there are all of these add-ons. You're, you're buying sleep sacks and swaddles and sheets and whatever that only work with the Snoo. So you got to buy the stuff. How did people in the company talk to you about how the Snoo is positioned, kind of in in the market of baby stuff?
3: It was interesting because a lot of people who I spoke with who worked at Happiest Baby had negative things to say about the company, but a lot of them. Believe that this new could do kind of some real good. And especially for those people, I think some were uncomfortable with how it was being presented, especially in this kind of luxury, celebrity-focused marketing. So for people who kind of joined the company because they believe in this mission, to be kind of charging this much money and focusing on celebrities and kind of, I talked to some customer service employees who said, yes, it was some employees' jobs just to deal with influencers and celebrity clients. Like, hmm. they were getting a different level of care than the average customer Word, And that made people uncomfortable. It's true
2: that you can sell a lot of things to a sleep-deprived parent, especially a first-time one. I got one email from Happiest Baby saying a tired parent's brain is basically drunk. So if snoo can get you an extra hour of sleep while keeping your baby
3: safe, the thinking goes, why wouldn't you get it? It's really kind of interesting because it's, one, like, that saying, this is necessary, you need to get this, but also it's saying, like, for a new parent, what is a better luxury than sleep? You would pay anything to be a little bit better rested at that point in time. It's hitting both points of luxury, but also, like, If you don't do this, this is putting your child at risk. And that's something that experts and some employees I talked with said they felt really uncomfortable with that kind of the messaging that parents were bad parents if they didn't buy this. That was something that pretty much every expert said, especially around SIDS, is just objectively untrue. And that some employees were like, this is part of our marketing and it's not okay that this is part of our marketing. Did anyone talk to you about
2: the app? Because you you can look at a graph. When your child wakes up in the morning, of when they slept, when the snoo went to its highest motion settings, or, or all of that stuff, um, and I've seen this kind of stuff take off on the internet. Like there was a Facebook group of people screenshotting and sharing their graphs. I wonder what people in the company thought about the relationship between technology and how we live now, and and parents at their most vulnerable.
3: It's something that I think the app fed into this larger thing that. People, especially people who used to be on the customer service team, told me is that people just have wild demands for what they need from this product. And they want to chart and see that it's actually achieving something where people, if it's not meeting these demands, people are feeling like angry and ripped off and like they want to be able to look at the app and say, oh, this did succeed in doing this. Oh, I spent this money for something that actually like had proven X extra minutes of sleep. Having that, like, very, very concrete quantifiable payoff, I think, is something that they've gamified the system really well.
2: Kate also spent time reporting on what it's like to work inside Happiest Baby. And what she found was a company culture that was far from happy. When I
3: talk to people, the most remarkable, in a bad way, thing was just the company culture. um, Where they're like, this is a company that came up with something that was genius. They've been able to see massive success. But if it was run by people who didn't micromanage the company, did not make employees feel uncomfortable, did not kind of create all of these weird surveillance state tactics, like they would be able to achieve so much more.
2: Employees told Kate that they were micromanaged by the company founders and that their comings and goings were monitored.
3: You have things where it's The office cleaner is kind of like taking notes on when people are at their desk and when they're going to the bathroom. Like It was a really, really wild level of surveillance that kind of, I don't know, it was extremely strange and really weighed on people and kind of drove them out of the company. I had one person who said that she was summoned into the co-founder's office and presented with this list of exactly when she had arrived in the office every morning down to the exact minute. um, And then exactly how long she left for lunch on her like 15-minute lunch break. So these things were just like really, really absurd to hear about and kind of Maybe be like, why are these co-founders investing so much time and energy into these details and this monitoring when they kind of could be continuing to work on a product that, while polarizing, a lot of people really love?
2: When negative reviews of the company appeared on the website Glassdoor, where people anonymously review their employers, Kate says workers were encouraged by the founders to write positive things about Happiest Baby
3: there was definitely uh, a lot of current employees being encouraged, heavily encouraged, to write positive reviews to counteract the really negative things that people were experiencing, which it's kind of like reviews are complaining about micromanagement, and then employees were saying that there is micromanaging the response to this. That's something that I found interesting. Even with my article, um, we reached out for comments said, hey here's what we've been hearing, here's what's going on. Instead of kind of immediately addressing those concerns, uh, we got dozens of responses supposedly from current and former employees at Happiest Baby that were sent to us, but the names were all blacked out and we were not given the chance to talk to any of these employees. So, And then one of the employees who wrote that response reached out to me and said, hey, please don't use a response if you get one from me. I felt like I had to say, this company's great because if I didn't, I was worried I was going to lose my job. Uh, So it was definitely kind of this feedback loop of when people had a hard time, they had nowhere to go because of the kind of fear of upper management. So then that was used to make employees say, oh no, everything's fine. And then kind of continue these practices that a lot of people found to be really harmful. Where was that coming from, that kind of culture? I think it was directly from the founder. So we have Harvey Karp, this former pediatrician, and then his wife and co-founder, Nina Monte Karp, who she was the person who employees told me was responsible for some of this really aggressive surveillance culture. And I think that it's partially what you see from a lot of startups where... It's hard for founders to surrender any control. It's just that on steroids, where instead of just refusing to surrender control on the product, they're also kind of demanding this control over every single aspect of employees' lives. And um, it really played out in ways that some employees, especially a lot of former employees I talked to, found to be super, super harmful for their mental health, but also just for the success of the company. How did, how did it impact the success of the company? I think that one big thing is there have been internal discussions and a ton of internal efforts on the new and improved SNU for years. Since at least 2018, I heard from employees, this has been the big kind of focus where they wanted to have this bigger, better, more high-tech SNU. And there have been millions of dollars spent on this, um, according to employees I spoke with. But this just kept on getting delayed because of All next for management, people changing their minds last minute on how something should go. And then this fall, they laid off most of the people in the U.S. who are working on this SNU Plus that was supposed to launch. Um, So something like that, where if this new and improved SNU hit the market, it would clearly be a huge step forward for the SNU. And because upper management wasn't able to pull that off, that just isn't happening for the foreseeable future.
2: What did the company say in, in response to your reporting?
3: They very much denied a lot of the things I'd heard from many, many employees, especially the conclusions that I drew. A lot of things they felt were factually inaccurate Um, around medical issues. They provided people who were working at the company who said that, no, these concerns over babies struggling to transition away from this new or it interfering with natural development. They basically said, that's not fair that is inaccurate. Um, Around concerns on the company culture, they said that was factually inaccurate. And then on SIDS, what they said is we've never claimed to prevent SIDS, which is interesting when you read the actual language on the site. You can say maybe it was not explicitly said, but there was some pretty aggressive linkage between the SNU and SIDS.
2: I'm thinking a lot about my own experience. You know, when I read your story and, and Talking to you, I was definitely a complete psycho in the in the early months of of my son's life. Um, but there is also this thing about technology where we're so accustomed to letting tech into various parts of our lives now, or at least in in twenty twenty when when I had my son, that it seemed weirdly natural that it would be in my baby's life too. And I, I'm thinking through that, and I'm I'm wondering both about that ease, but then also whether there is some pushback against that ease. Like, if we're a little more skeptical in 2023, um, even in the short period of time that the SNU has been on the market, I feel like American attitudes toward technology have changed somewhat.
3: Even just amongst my friends before I wrote this article, I had heard so many different opinions on the SNU. And after reporting this out, I don't. Think that tech is necessarily a bad thing to introduce into infants' lives. Like, I think that this new and other devices like it can have a lot of uses. But I do think that it's good to have some skepticism there where, okay, there are uses for this. Like, it might help certain babies, but it's not proven to prevent SIDS. It's not proven to increase sleep in all children. Like, there are things that we need to remain skeptical of where we can say, okay, this can help certain children, but by kind of allowing this hype to build and build and build, I think it kind of makes it more difficult to understand what kids need and what parents need and kind of feed into these anxieties of, if I don't buy this, if I don't do this, I'm failing my kid.
2: I have seen these videos of Harvey Karp, and they're old. They're probably late 90s Harvey Karp walking in, holding babies, rocking them, shing up close to their ear, like really loudly. Um, and it works. It's incredible. They fall asleep like instantaneously. And it's really fascinating to think about the distance between Harvey Karp, pediatrician, putting his, you know, his hands lovingly cradling a child, the intimacy of that. And then this mechanical bassinet like rotating your child back and forth like they're a a little astronaut about to blast off. I don't know. It feels like there's a strange dissonance between his early work about these connections between people and parents and children and the idea that the SNU
3: could step
2: in and do some of that work for you.
3: Carp's early stuff is almost uncomfortably hands-on when you watch it. Like it's so visceral, the really loud shushing and like the rocking, like it's it's something that works, but like when you're watching videos of it, it almost feels too intimate or too hands-on to see. And then that versus the very sterile snoo, it is a departure. And I think that it's something that CARP kind of identified a problem that I think is a very, very real problem that parents feel pretty isolated a lot of the time where they feel like, oh, I can't turn to other people in my community, parents, um, my own parents, and have them kind of help in a hands-on way. And Harvey has basically said, here's something that can be that extra set of hands that instead of having uh, grandparents living with you, maybe this is something that you can rely on instead to do that extra shift as a parent. It is interesting because he kind of came up with the idea that a baby is in its fourth trimester after it's born. It needs that constant hands-on, really like womb-like environment. But then instead of kind of encouraging that to continue to be from parents or from caregivers, saying, instead of that, we can have a robot do it, uh, which <laughs> isn't a terrible thing, but it's a real departure from kind of how we started out. It's It's a really interesting evolution.
2: Kate Taylor, thank you for your reporting and for taking the time to talk with me.
3: Yes, of course. Thank you so much.
2: Kate Taylor is a senior correspondent for Insider. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate Arizona State University, and New America. And if you are a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Join Slate Plus. You get to listen to all your Slate podcasts ad-free. Just head on over to slate.com slash plus to sign up. All right, we'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.
0: Coming soon from Slate Podcasts.
1: So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin.
0: In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people.
1: And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay
3: community, which shocked us all.
1: If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings,
0: sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.
4: I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS, we are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.